Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, Not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 2, 1 through 322. 
Hey church, let's open our Bibles to Revelation 2 and 3. And if you have your journals, make sure you have them out as we're going to be using these two chapters in week two of our series, The Revealed Jesus. If you were with us last week, uh, Dr. Shane Wood was with us and we quizzed him a little bit on how to view this book. And the takeaway that I received last week was there is nothing we need more right now than a clearer picture of Jesus. Nothing will aid us more, nothing will secure us more and set our feet than having a clear vision of who Jesus is. And you might remember the first five words of, of this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. I've entitled the message, He Knows. How do you respond when someone says to you, I know? I, I've had multiple different responses depending on the circumstances. It can bring me joy or contentment, it can bring me peace, and it can bring me a whole lot of frustration when someone says, I know. When I've had a feeling and I'm trying to express it and I'm frustrated and I look at my wife and she says, I know. That just brings me warmth. I feel safe. I feel understood. When I failed at something and I tried really hard and a coach looked at me and pats me on the back and says, I know, I know. I, I feel good about that. I feel like I've been validated. I, even though I didn't do everything I wanted to, they, they knew I was giving my best effort. When I'm trying to get my sons or someone I care about deeply to see something that might be beneficial for them and they give me, I know, I want to yell, no, you don't. I'm trying to help you. Let me help you. And sometimes that can be frustrated. Other times they might say to me, I know, and I feel good about that because they've learned it. They've held on to it. You see, that expression, I know, can bring fear or joy or peace or so many different emotions. What do we do when God says, I know? How do we respond when we bring something to God and he says, I know. I remember times my parents would quiz me when I'd done something I shouldn't have done. And my parents would bring me in and they would ask a series of questions. And I found out later they were just trying to find out if I would tell them the truth. And I always knew in those moments that if I was honest with them, and I even told them the ugly, unfortunate part, my parents would say these words to me, we know. It was in that moment that I knew I was going to live. I would get another day. Because what they wanted me to say to them was truth. When Jesus says, I know, in the revelation, he's telling us something that should bring comfort and peace and joy. See, John was told to write down these words to the seven churches. You might remember that we don't count numbers in Revelation, we weigh them. How heavy are they? How significant are they? What weight do they bring to the story? Seven is a big number in scripture. It's perfection. So there are seven churches in Asia Minor that were, being, were over-listening their story. But the beautiful part of it is, it was not only a message to those churches, it was a message to this church too. And Jesus is telling us, I know. Jesus knows that we're faced with temptations every single day. Jesus knows that we're asked by culture to compromise. Jesus knows that we often trust in ourselves rather than him. He knows that it's easier to give in to sin than to not he knows that the world rewards compliance and compromise. Jesus knows that there is a threat in believing that behavior has consequences. He knows that there are battles raging for our marriages, for our homes, for our minds, and for our hearts. The revelation of Jesus is a message to every one of us. And the message tonight is, he knows. He's calling us to take him seriously to trust in what he is and what he's been doing for centuries as he rewrites our story from broken 
to healed. He's calling us to hold fast, to endure with patience, to walk with purity in the midst of a world of sin, to live with passion, to proclaim the gospel even when it costs us our lives. Because there's something greater than just your life here on earth that's at stake. Jesus knows this, and he wants us to know it too. So in this revelation of Jesus, chapters two and three, we're gonna take sample of Jesus' words to his churches. And I want us to pay attention to these words because if you haven't figured it out yet, he knows what he's talking about. And we should honor that with the highest authority in our lives. Jesus knows that things are tough, that we're distracted, that our loyalty and commitment is challenged every day. He comes to his church and he speaks clearly to them. He encourages, he comforts, he confronts, he asks for trust, he asks for patience. He calls us out when we're compromising. He warns us not to fall away. In the end, he promises that he's coming soon and he urges us to hold on. So here's what I want you to take away from our time together. I hope you're encouraged. I hope you're comforted. I hope you're strengthened. I hope we don't just hear Jesus speaking to a church and think he's not speaking to our church. At the same time, I'm praying that there would be deep conviction in all of us. And those of us who are giving into sin and those of us who are compromising our faith, that we would see tonight an opportunity that when Jesus says, I know what you're doing, it can either be the greatest moment of hope and forgiveness or it can be the greatest moment of judgment and condemnation. So what we're gonna see tonight is that Jesus knows what's right, Jesus knows what's wrong, Jesus knows what we need, and Jesus tells us that he fulfills his will if we fulfill his will. Revelation 3.22, you're gonna jump back and forth so you might get some paper cuts. Hold on, here we go. Look at Revelation 3.22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Three key pillars as we go forward. First of all, you probably have guessed by now, Jesus knows. In each of his letters, not in every single one of them, but in almost every one of the letters to the churches, he begins by saying, I know your works. I, I've noticed. We learned last week in Revelation chapter one that Jesus is amongst the lampstands which stand for the churches. He's not outside looking in. He's in the midst of what we're doing. He's in the midst of this community of faith. He's with us in every step. So he knows. Revelation 3, chapter, or chapter 3, verse 1, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That's a revealing and yet very frightening verse. Jesus sees who we truly are. We should listen when he speaks so that we might know what he knows. Jesus cares. In his most stern statements, he's calling us away from sin. I want you to know when you read this, he is judging our behavior. He's not judging our future. He is giving us an opportunity to listen and to respond. And he does this because he loves. Chapter three, verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He cares enough to speak truth. He loves us. He knows that judgment is coming for sin, all of our sin. So he graciously, mercifully, strongly, and sternly calls us away from sin. His discipline offers us hope. He's trying to stop us from drinking the poison and dying. So he takes things away and he adds things to our life because he cares. He says to a church 
And we'll talk about it in a little bit. He says to one church, if you don't change, I would rather spit you out of my mouth. And then turns around and says, but I would love nothing more than to have a meal with you. His discipline comes with hope and grace. And the third thing is Jesus protects. He's doing this from his care, from his knowledge, from his heart. Jesus does not pamper his people by softening truth. He does not accept our blasé attitude toward his will. He loves his people enough to confront us and to comfort us. He loves his people enough to convict, to cleanse, and to challenge. He gives warnings to protect us, not to threaten us. Yet if we don't heed those warnings, they will be our threat. And even when his words are hard, they are for us, not against us. If I can summarize all of that, all of that introduction, I want to say it this way. Jesus is a pretty good dude. Let him be that with you. Let him be that for you. Listen and grow. So as we speak today about this, this Jesus who knows, who cares, who protects, Jesus knows what is right. Here's what I want you to hold to heart. Jesus knows what is right, and so he commends. When Jesus sees us behaving properly, I, I once had a coach, and I was like, am I doing anything right? And he said, I'll let you know when you're doing something wrong. That's not a good coach. I needed a coach who said, that's where I want your feet. That's where I want your hands placed. This is how you do it. But instead, he just lets you meander, and if you messed up then, his voice was fully heard. I love the fact that Jesus isn't like that. Jesus sees good, and he speaks good. He encourages, he informs, he guides, he leads. He's doing that then and he does it now. He, he commends for patient endurance and truth. When he saw his people holding on to the words of God versus the words of the world, Jesus gave an attaboy and an attagirl and he spoke truth. This is one of the key themes throughout the book of Revelation. Four times in the seven letters, you'll read the word patient endurance or enduring patiently. So for patient endurance, look at chapter 2, verse 2, to the church at Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. There's an attaboy. He said, you know the truth, and you're not allowing anybody to take you off the truth. You're holding firmly to it. You're enduring patiently in these times. Verse 19 of chapter 2, to the church of Thyatira, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. Chapter 3, verse 10, to the church of Philadelphia, because you have kept my words about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on this whole world. When we will not tolerate false teaching, when we will hold on with patient endurance to truth, even when the world turns against us, Jesus is pleased. And so Jesus encourages us to hold on. Do not grow weary in guarding the church from falsehood. Do not just let any voice speak into your ear unless you test it against the word. If, if nothing else happened and my microphone died and everybody got up and walked out, I will have said something important tonight. The world has so many philosophies that are so unproven, but no matter who speaks them, some of us just entertain them as if, well, that makes sense. How does it compare to the living word of God? It takes a patient endurance to hold to the word of God when the philosophies of mankind are flying all around us. Jesus also commends for faithfully proclaiming him. At Pergamum, 
The angel or the spirit speaks to John and says, they're living in the middle of Satan's throne. I don't know what all that means. I have a suspicion, but, but that's not just hyperbole. That's not an exaggeration of an exaggeration. This is saying that they're living in this place where Satan's dominion is profound. And Antipas was killed for faithfully proclaiming Christ. And in chapter three, verse eight, to the church of Philadelphia, just like Pergamum, he said, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. He said, I have opened the kingdom to you and you have entered in the kingdom. And he celebrates with them that not only have they entered in, but they're inviting others to follow them into this kingdom. They're proclaiming the messianic kingdom that Jesus brought to be. When you look at the circumstances in these cities, Dr. Woods brought it up last, last week and it's important to say this. One of the things that Shane said that I wrote down immediately when I got home was, the cost of those cities to proclaim Jesus was everything. Some of them lost their jobs, some of them lost their lives, some of them lost their property, some of them lost their equipment, some of them lost everything they'd spent their lives building, all because they believed that Jesus was the Christ. And even when they were right, they suffered for it. Jesus sees us, he knows. He knows the price we pay to remain faithful. They face slander and economic opposition and social opposition. And we live in a cancel culture, don't we? One of the things we need to listen, if you take a stand for Jesus, you are going to be written off in this world as ignorant, as mean-spirited. And in a cancel culture, you just won't suffer socially, you could suffer professionally as well. And there is a part in each one of us that wants to stay out of the crosshairs. We don't want the light on us. We just wanna silently love Jesus and be left alone. But Jesus commends those who are willing to stand at risk and proclaim who he is. There's an increasing temptation to shrink back from the word in the name of Jesus. And he knows that when we take that stand, he knows the price we're paying. He also commends them for trusting God while suffering. With that stand comes punishment. These believers were experiencing poverty, suffering, seeing loved ones die and tortured. They were slandered to the church of Smyrna in Revelation 2.10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. What an astounding verse. Even though the scriptures are clear that we will all face trials and tests, God is doing this to solidify his faith and demonstrate his faithfulness. So hear me carefully. Jesus' word is that these tests won't last forever, but the faith that is strengthened in the test will. I want to say that again. The test that we suffer through to stand firm on Jesus Christ will not last forever, but the faith that we gain by standing firm does. It will last for eternity. Satan wants to sabotage the church by tempting, by pulling away, by discouraging, by distracting us. Whether we want to believe it or not, there are spiritual forces of evil that are real. And in our world, we've written them off. But I want you to know Jesus believed they were real. The Apostle Paul believed they were real. And your scriptures say that Satan is not a joke. He's not a myth. He's a force. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 4, to the church of Sardis. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Isn't that beautiful that the, the white robes that we wear will be given to us by our Savior? 
And yet we will get credit for having simply put them on and we will be found worthy because he's the one who's washed us clean. Yet the people of Sardis, they stood strong. They paid a big price. They suffered and Jesus commends them. But Jesus also rebukes because he knows. He knows those things that are wrong and he loves us enough to confront those things with opportunity, not just with judgment. There are two main causes, if, if you'll allow me to, if I could summarize these seven churches, there are two main things that are repetitive in these letters. Things that Jesus says, be careful about that. And not every church gets rebuked. Five of the churches get told, be careful, stop. And two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, have nothing mentioned that they're warned about. So let's begin to look at these two big things. The first is compromise. Jesus rebukes us when we compromise. There was great pressure from all sides, religious, governmental, societal, economic, that led people to settle for less. It happens in our world too. I know I've done the same thing. There is an advantage financially to not taking such a strong stand. I've, I've unfortunately done that. Socially, I've unfortunately done that. I can pick all of these and think, sometimes it's hard to stand strong because it's easier to compromise because you're really not walking away from your faith, but the reason you're compromising it is because of the advantages you gain in the now instead of holding on and trusting God in the true. How does this show? It shows intolerance of idolatry and immorality. This is one of the examples that's given in, to the church of Pergamum in chapter 2, verse 14. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. It's our culture, isn't it? Our culture has redefined what God knows to be true. That if two consenting adults choose to do whatever they want for their own pleasure, whose business is it but theirs? It's God's. And the problem is this was infiltrating the church, the community pursuing holiness. And so as believers, it's not just our business, our pleasure. It's about our holiness. There was also tolerance of false teaching. In chapter 2, verse 20, the church of Thyatira. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Jesus said, I know what's going on and I know that you're accepting false teaching because it rewards you. It allows you to play both sides from the middle. And he's warning us, this does not work. This is not right. And let's be clear. Jesus is not sitting watching us in the midst of our activity and he's offended because we're getting away with something. He's offended because we're hurting ourselves and we're hurting others. Sin doesn't let anybody unscathed. So his protection of us, his concern for us, his knowledge of us is calling us to something greater. We compromise for a variety of reasons. We accept false teaching for a variety of reasons and Jesus says, I know why you're doing this. And not only compromise, but complacency. So what is complacency? It's having a meh attitude about it. It's what I like to say is, it's the slow play of sin. We simply lower our standards, we lower our guard, we walk through life thinking it's pretty smooth, not a lot of persecution in the States, we can just plow ahead. Complacency sets in. How does it show itself? 
Well, there's two churches he identifies. The first is there's a lack of love to the church at Ephesus. This is one of the most famous parts of any letter given to the churches. In chapter two, verses four and five. To this church, he says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. If you don't know the story of the church of Ephesus, just write down Acts chapter 19. And you'll understand what Jesus is pointing out. In Acts 19, the church was on fire. They were winning a city that was upside down with immorality. They were bringing people to know the lordship and salvation found in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And yet he says here, you've lost that. You've lost your passion for the gospel. You've lost your passion for the difference the gospel made in your life and so that you're not sharing it with others as well. You're holding tight into this world. You've lost your love for people, for the goodness of what the kingdom brings. Complacency is also found in a lukewarm faith, another famous passage from these two chapters. In chapter 3, verses 15, 16, and 17. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one of the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus said, I know what's going on. Now there's some background here that he would have taken this geographical moment that his audience would have understood about this town of Laodicea. Laodicea, six miles to the north of the city, was a, a town called Hierapolis, and it was full of hot springs. And people would go to those hot springs for healing and as a balm. And they would use those hot springs for their benefit, for their health. And six miles, or excuse me, 10 miles to the east was the town of Colossae. And this was a city known for cold drinking water. So hot was good in Hierapolis, cold was good in Colossae, but water that was neither healing nor refreshing was wasted. Do you see the, do you see the picture he just painted? He took these two geographical towns that would be known for something. He said, both of them provide something of benefit. In Laodicea, you're lukewarm. You're not doing either. You're not healing. You're not refreshing. You're living your lives in such a way that you're making no difference. And he said, I would rather drink nothing than drink what you're offering. And they were a rich, prosperous town. In fact, so much that in AD 60, there was an earthquake that devastated the area. And when Rome came in as big daddy and they wanted to provide finances to help these cities devastated by the earthquake, the town of Laodicea waved them off and said, we don't need your help. Why? Because they, had, they could take care of themselves. And Jesus capitalizes on that. He says, I know what you're doing. You're so self-sufficient that you're not providing any goodness in the world because you think you have it all to yourself. And I want you to look with me. It won't appear on the screen, but look with me at Revelation 3:20. Probably the most famous passage in all of these two chapters. I stand at the door and knock. I don't know if you were raised in church, but I was. And I remember in junior church when we were little people, kids church, that we would sing a song about I stand at the door and knock. Will anyone answer? And I used to think, and I've been at revival services. Do I have to explain what a revival service is? Now you guys get it. But I've been at revival services where the preacher would use Revelation 3.20 to say, Jesus is standing at the door and knock. Come to him. Come to, and it was always for unsaved people. But do you know that Jesus actually said that to his own church? He said, you don't let me in. You don't need me. I'm locked out of my own church. He said, I'm standing at the door of the church asking you, would you let me in? You need me. 
And then there's hope. And if you do, I will come in and sit and have a meal with you. Maggie led us to the table. She, she showed us what this, these symbols mean. An invitation from our Savior to be his church. He knows that sometimes we become lethargic. Sometimes we're complacent. Sometimes we compromise. And he's offering us hope. So the third thing I want to tell you is, not only does he commend his church because he knows what they're doing well, but he also rebukes them so that they stop doing what they shouldn't and he knows what we need. See, when Jesus says, I know, it can frighten you or it can encourage you. When Jesus says, I know what you're doing, but I'm going to give you a chance, it should lift your heart up to show his goodness, his kindness. And what does he know we need? It's one word, repentance. This is what he says over and over to his church. Turn from what is not right to what is right. Trust me, follow me, believe in me. Jesus gives everyone time to repent. I, I want that to sink in. Jesus has given every single one of us in this room a chance to repent. And one of the things I think about occasionally, I don't think about it enough and I have to train myself to, but when I think about it, it startles me. On the day that I stand, and all of us will stand in the judgment, believers and unbelievers will all stand in the judgment before Jesus. And in his kindness and goodness, covered in his blood, he will judge your good deeds. And to those who do, are not covered in his blood because they've rejected him, they can only be judged for their sin. And we will stand in the judgment. And here's what comes to my heart and mind. When Jesus tells me the words I've said that have come from my heart and out of my mouth that have revealed my brokenness and my sin, I will never, ever be able to argue. He knows. He doesn't have to bring lies. He's going to bring me into his truth. And he has given me time to repent. And there will not be a single person in this world when Jesus comes and reestablishes his kingdom here and reestablishes the new heaven and earth. There will not be a single person who hears the judgment of Jesus and says, uh-uh, that's not fair. I never had a chance. He's giving everyone a chance to repent. That's why we open tonight with, let those who have ears listen. He's giving us a chance. He's offering us hope. Revelation 2, 5 Unless you repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Let it be heard as we gather. It is a privilege to be a part of his church. It's not a duty. It's not an obligation. It's a gift. And he says, if I take the lampstand from your church, you have nothing. Repent so you can be my church. In chapter 2, verse 16, if you do not repent, I will come to you soon and war against you with the sword of my mouth. When I think about it this week, I've honestly been touched quite a bit in different ways by my um, honest appraisal of where I am. And when it comes to weakness, as the top for me is this prideful prayerlessness. I don't always like to pray and sometimes I find a reason not to pray and even as a pastor, I can get busy studying and talking to other people and not pray and I realized this week, the biggest sign of my belief in the power of Jesus Christ is my willingness to need to pray. I need him. I need his interaction. I don't want to become legalistic about prayer. I just want to become alive. He's given me a chance to repent of my stubbornness 
and come to him and to be his church. See, by grace through faith, true followers of Christ work to persevere to the end. He is giving us a chance to repent so that not only we endure, but that we work in endurance. Let me show you Matthew chapter 24, the words of our king. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Hebrews 10, 36. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. See, we're never told for a second that being a believer and following Jesus is like coasting down a smooth hill with the wind in our hair. The scriptures say it this way. It's a race that takes effort. It's not an easy race. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's also a war. It's a battle fought to the very end. Endurance, fighting on. Jesus commends us. He rebukes us. He calls us to repent and return. And lastly, and here's the good news, Jesus rewards his will. Jesus says, I know what you're going through. I know you have other options. I know that it's easier to be a part of the world than it is to be a part of my kingdom. But he says, never doubt for a moment. Never doubt for a moment. I am faithful and true. I will reward you if you trust me. Revelation 2.11. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus closes each letter to the seven churches with a promise. A promise that if they repent and walk in obedience, if they hold fast to the name of Christ, if they trust God amidst testing, if they love God amid temptation, they will experience his reward. That they will not taste the second death. The picture of the knowing Jesus should be refreshment to our souls. We don't have to wonder what pleases him. We don't have to fear his correction. We don't have to question what we mean to him. We don't have to know everything we want to know. We only have to know he can be trusted. There's a battle for our minds and our souls. He is guiding us by his word and his spirit. He understands what we're facing. So he calls for us to enter deeper into our faith. And whatever reason you have right now to fear stepping further into faith and trusting this one who's revealed to us, who says, I have this all, he knows. He knows the concerns we have. He knows the fears we have. He knows we're not strong. He knows we struggle. He knows that we have spent years of our lives not paying attention to his movements, not being involved in the word. And yet that Jesus, who knows all the reasons in the world why he should throw up his hands and go, why bother? That Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and let me in, I will sit down at this table and I will eat with you. I will associate with you, Zacchaeus. I will associate with you, Matthew. I'll associate you, woman with the past. I'll associate with those who once mocked my name. I will sit down with you because I know the price it takes to walk by faith, but I call you to walk. I told you from the very beginning, I hope this wakes our hearts up to realize that the burden of faith is heavy, and yet Jesus is the one who carries it. He says, I know. I want you to listen to these words as I conclude. I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you, says the King of kings, the Lord of lords, 
the powerful name of Jesus. I will reward my will if you will live my will as your own. This is who we worship. This is why we're here. This is hope in tough times that he knows and he cares and he's willing to protect us if we follow him. Let's stand together. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.